Welcome to Brexit and Beyond, the podcast from UK and a Changing Europe. I'm Jill Rutter, Senior Research Fellow at UK and a Changing Europe, and I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by our Senior Fellow, Katie Hayward. Uh, the fact that Katie's on the podcast is probably a leading indicator that we're going to talk a bit about Northern Ireland, but not just Northern Ireland. So I'm joined as well by our very own Anand Menon, crossing the floor, if you like, be on the other side of the microphone for once and he'll get all the difficult questions. So we're going to be talking about what happened last week. Uh, We're recording this on 26th of July but last week the government published its views on how to rebalance that Northern Ireland protocol. So we're going to be talking about that but we're also going to be looking more widely at where the UK-EU relationship is seven months after the Trade and Cooperation Agreement was finally signed. Katie, David Frost described this as proposing a new balance that will lead to a new era, if you like, in UK-EU relations away from the sort of fractiousness that have characterised them to date. Is that how you read the document he published last week? Yes, I think there are two ways that they're conceiving rebalancing the relationship as they are represented at the moment in the protocol on Ireland, Northern Ireland. So one is this idea of the UK and the EU being sovereign equals or or equal partners. This, of course, is a theme that we've seen many times before. It's written into this in some ways, perhaps most obviously in the request to step down the role of the Court of Justice. And then we also see a new balance in a slightly different way, um, perhaps one that we couldn't have anticipated some time back, and that is a rebalance between East, West and North, South. Um, So the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, of course, has three strands. Uh, One strand is British Irish um, East, West, and the other strand is North, South. And then we have unionist nationalists within Northern Ireland. And what the UK government is stressing here is that it's trying to bring a, a sort of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement back into the mix by not just concentrating on keeping um, the Irish land border open, i.e. north-south relations, but also some adjustments to the so-called sea border, i.e. east-west. Fundamental to this is trying to reassure unionists in Northern Ireland who have particular concerns about the protocol. And in that way, Frost is saying there's a, there should be a, a rebalancing or a new balance coming out of this period of negotiation that he wants to see for the protocol and thus setting it on a more stable basis for the future. Arland, were you surprised at the extent of the proposals that the government put forward last week? I was surprised by what you can call the sort of while we're at it bits. I mean, I wasn't surprised by the the bald statement that the protocol isn't working to the satisfaction of the British government. I was slightly taken aback by the, and while you're here, we'd also like to strip out some elements of the agreement that we didn't like at all, but you insisted on first time round. And I was surprised, one, that they did it, and two, that they thought that if you asked the same question a second time, you'd get a different answer, because I don't see any prospect of the EU... You know, as long as there's EU law involved in Northern Ireland, the EU is going to insist on its own court being the ultimate arbiter of that law. It's a sacred principle for the Union. Do we see a strategy behind this? You've said that actually it's asking the EU to really go back and rethink some of the sort of fundamentals that it agreed to back in October 2019. The EU, I think, is probably pretty happy with what the UK signed up to back then. But what happens if the EU says no? Well, I mean, in terms of strategy, I suppose there's one of two choices. Either the government genuinely means what it says, in which case we're heading for a breakdown or a triggering of Article 16 because the UK government won't get it what it wants, 
or this is simply ramping up demands in the hope that the original demands, i.e. for lighter touch checks on the sea border, will see more deliverable to the European Union. So it might be ramping up the ass to get what you originally wanted could be the, the strategy. I'm just not sure. And Katie, what's been the effect on public opinion in Northern Ireland? If the government did actually see this as really just creating a bit of space for the EU to move on some of the more technical aspects, but say maintaining the role of the European Court of Justice, would people think that's another sellout by the UK on the unionist side? I mean, how high have expectations gone about where this might go? So in terms of reaction to the command paper here, uh, it certainly continues to raise expectations on the unionist side or those who are very critical of the protocol in that they think basically the UK has lined up Article 16 now to be invoked in the autumn if they don't get what they're looking for. And also we have a reassertion of there being an alternative to the protocol. That's sort of set out in slightly vague terms in, in this command paper, but they are indicating that, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. And in so doing, there is this sense of hopes continuing to be maintained in Northern Ireland, that the, there is some way of adjusting the Irish sea border and the, and the implications of the protocol to try and meet some of the concerns of unionists. Have the Northern Ireland business community welcomed what the UK government's been putting forward in terms of making their life much easier going forward by reducing some of these checks that have got in the way of doing trade, particularly east-west trade? I did if this would be appropriate point to um, plug my blog on the UK Change your website but I mentioned yes very, oh thank you well like let me let me do that right away and it's, it's rather long but in it I, I do sort of mention that you know some of the issues that businesses have been raising for many many months now aren't really addressed by this paper and that some of those are the more complex matters uh, that relate to paperwork in particular and some of the details of the working out of the protocol they aren't really addressed and I think that's something quite worth noting in this command paper the things that businesses have been asking for yes they do want that burden reduced on the sea border but it's, it's not necessarily going to be addressed in this in this command paper it's not dealing with technicalities it is quite broad brush strokes um, and indeed the thing that they have been asking for most consistently is to have stability and certainty and with the sort of Damocles sort of hanging over the protocol in this way there is this sense of well maybe things could be thrown up in the air again come the autumn for all the talk of wanting a new balance in the relationship and wanting partnership and wanting the Good Friday Agreement to be protected, et cetera, et cetera. Fundamental to all of this is we are seeing a maintaining of that tension in the relationship. And therefore, that fundamental request from business hasn't actually been addressed, i.e. there's still considerable uncertainty uh, coming into the autumn now. And Alan, what actually happens if the UK does trigger Article 16? Because quite a lot of people have been, another plug, responding to our article uh, that we just wrote about this, saying, well, of course, Article 16 is in the protocol. So why would you put it in the protocol if you weren't intending to use it? So you know, the UK can point, it's pointing, I think, to quite a diversion of trade from east-west to north-south. So why on earth shouldn't the UK just avail itself of that provision? Would that really be a dramatic step as 
suggested? I mean, I do wonder whether the EU doesn't regret the wording of Article 16 now, because it's so broadly phrased, in a sense. The whole point, in a way, of the protocol was to lead to a degree of trade diversion, because it altered the costs of trading across a border. That will, by definition, lead to trade diversion. So putting in a document that would do that, in the event of trade diversion, you can trigger this emergency clause. I, I mean, Yes, I think the UK government could trigger it, and I'm not quite sure. I'm not a lawyer, but just looking on the face of Article 16, it's hard to see how you would argue against the fact that under the terms of that article, you are legitimate in doing so. But the big question is still, how do you deal with the Irish question in the context of Brexit? And at some point, the single market has to be protected. And if it can't be protected via the sea, then the EU is going to have to come up with another alternative. So the essential problem doesn't go away whether the UK is right or wrong in triggering. Katie, do you see any sort of landing zone emerging into view after this episode? I mean, we still, obviously, we're still um, circling around that question of can we get away with not having a border at all? And and, you know, if, if we don't want it in the Irish Sea, why can't it be an effect on the land uh, on the island of Ireland? I mean, that's fundamentally still in play, I think. Just to pick up on that Article 16 question, as the paper itself recognises, and perhaps this, it does so more explicitly than the UK government has ever done before, it does say, you know, it would only be temporary measures and it would have to be very specific. And therefore, the, the question is, well, what could... Article 16 do that would really get to the heart of some of the challenges and issues that are arising with respect to the protocol and the grounds on which Article 16 being triggered are you know attempting to be justified here are highly problematic when you look at the specifics of the Northern Ireland case so as Anna mentioned you know diversion of trade it's a logical thing to do there's an open Irish border the, the logical thing is to continue to make the most of that if your businesses and then I think more worryingly, we do have this real conundrum with the emphasis upon societal difficulties. Um, so the UK government, possibly for understandable reasons, is pointing to unease within Northern Ireland, as has been demonstrated to a limited degree in, in protests in Northern Ireland. What this is doing is giving the sense of, well, if we continue to um, increase tensions if we're against the protocol, if we continue to make it a live and um, highly contentious divisive issue to demonstrate the risks to stability and even peace in Northern Ireland, if this protocol remains in place, then we're in effect strengthening the arm of the British government vis-a-vis Article 16 and even potentially scrapping the protocol. And that's really not a good situation uh, to be in if you're wanting to support the conditions for peace and stability in Northern Ireland. So although it's understandable in the short term, Longer term, I think the British government does need to be careful about where it's giving sucker, especially when you think where things may realistically go from here, i.e. what the options are. And unsurprisingly, we've already seen the EU's reaction is we're not going to open up the protocol for renegotiation, but we will look for creative solutions within its terms, including through the joint committee, of course. And given that expectations need to be much more realistic and perhaps lowered in some quarters in order to create the more solid foundation for what to expect in the coming months. Katie, I mean, you were notable for being footnoted quite extensively in the UK government command paper. I'm not sure whether you 
had advance notice that you were going to be so much cited, I think more than anything else. Do you think the government has actually sort of taken the temperature right of the average person in the street in Northern Ireland, if there is an average person in the street, about how concerned they are about what might change when the grace periods expire? So this is some of the risks that you have if you conduct any polling (laughs) and that you can, you know, obviously people can be selective in what they pick out. And in this case, quite understandably, the government has emphasised the fact that there is almost equal split in Northern Ireland, according to the poll that was conducted by Queen's University with Lucid Talk, and that we've, uh, through the post-Brexit governance project we've got here, and essentially they are split over whether the protocol is a good thing or not, but they The majority of people in Northern Ireland think that there are economic opportunities through um, the protocol, and they think that something specific for Northern Ireland has been necessary through Brexit. I think if you look in more detail at the data, it is very clear that it's not the case that unionists as a whole have a particular view of the protocol. It's very much that those who are more strongly unionist, particularly obviously DUP supporters, are very opposed to the protocol. As you come more across the spectrum, including those who are sort of more soft unionists, unionists, those who are non-aligned, you see more nuanced and varied opinions on it, which suggests that there is scope there for a more full compromise, if you like, and for coming to terms with the realities of that very difficult uh, situation of trying to you know, manage a border, a new border post-Brexit. Um, but people are open to the, the fact that something specific is needed. We don't need to scrap this thing. It's interesting that the British government has focused most particularly on those views of the strongly unionist pro-leave supporters in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I'm going to take a quick strategic time out, which those of you watching The 100 will know is now a little brief break for an advertisement, this time not for a brand of crisps. Hello. Sorry to interrupt this fantastic podcast. My name is Catherine Barnard and I wanted to tell you about our wonderful newsletter that comes out each week full of news and views. And then if you're really interested, follow us on Twitter too. Okay, and coming back from that, Katie, looking ahead, uh, we've got Northern Ireland Assembly elections. Northern Ireland was the only place that didn't have elections this uh, May, but it does have elections next year, assuming the executive lasts till then. How much is this issue likely to feature? So, yeah, so we'd meant we'd be having to have an Assembly election uh, by next May if we get to that, as you say. It may well happen beforehand because we've still got quite a lot of flux politically at the moment with the expectation that the First Minister may change, etc. And the polling that we conducted suggests that, you know, fewer than one in 10 people think that the protocol won't be significant in that assembly election. And then when we look at how people will vote, again, it's sort of even split as to whether they want to vote for a candidate who will continue with um, supporting the protocol or a candidate who wants to see changes made or an ending to the Irish sea border under the protocol. And this is all very important because at the end of 2024, there'll be a democratic consent vote, so-called, in the Assembly as to whether to continue with the full implementation of the protocol or to step down Articles 5 to 10, i.e. the Irish Sea border. So in this way, it's really extraordinary, but so these regional elections will have huge implications for the UK-EU relationship, because if it is the case that the MLAs vote, even with a simple majority, to step down Articles 5 to 10, or perhaps you could argue if it's a close vote, that we see this will be of grave concern for the EU as a whole. The UK and the EU will end up renegotiating how to manage that really complex 
Irish question. And so this is why um, I think in the EU's decision as to how it will respond to the UK's requests here, it should bear in mind that this issue won't be going away, to, so to speak. And that if we do have an ending of the grace periods, potentially, say, in, if they do get an extension up to six months' time, if there is disruption and disturbance, that will affect people's voting and therefore may have an impact on the consent vote at the end of 2024. So it will remain a, a politically live issue for some time to come. Anand, where does this leave the UK's relationship with the EU? I'm not sure how much it changes, to be honest. I mean, it's not as if we're, we're starting at a point where the EU was sort of overflowing with trust for the UK and that trust has suddenly been shattered. I think ultimately, once this command paper's out, we're, we're, we're essentially back where we started from. The UK government doesn't like how the protocol operates. The EU isn't willing to renegotiate it. They've got to figure something out by the end of September. It doesn't help. I'm not sure it massively hinders either. But ultimately, the bottom line is both sides realise they need something like the protocol. Both sides, I think, realise that therefore they have to make something along these lines work. The question is, I suppose at the moment from the UK's perspective, how far will the European Union go? And of course, one of the worrying things is if you sort of follow Twitter, you'll see a lot of the sort of vote leave types at the moment doubling down on the claim that if you act tough, they buckle. Now, I'm not convinced that any of the instances they cite of that actually are evidence of that. But as long as that belief is there, I have the sense that that belief is there in number 10, then the UK government isn't in the business of making concessions at the moment. And I just don't see an easy way out of this. One of the question marks about the UK's ability to act tough now, as opposed to back in 2019, is the change of US administration. Do you see, Anand, any signs that the US wants to get involved? We had a sort of warning shot fired from the State Department on the morning that the command paper was issued, but does it go beyond the odd démarche? briefed to the press? Well, I mean, it struck me as very, very significant that Blinken talked about solutions within the framework of the protocol, because given that the UK's command paper was talking about renegotiating the principle, that, the protocol, that that struck me as quite important. I imagine that the Irish government is being very active in Washington at the moment over this, and I would suspect that their key request of the Americans is to prevail upon the British to make the existing framework function. In that case, yes, I think it does matter immensely that there is a new US administration there. And I think ultimately, they will add to that chorus of voices saying, just make this thing you've signed up to work. And Katie, are you getting sense of the reaction from the Irish government? Do they deep down have some sympathies with some of the sort of, not with the cutting out the ECJ and those sorts of things, but with some of the sort of practical problems that the UK government's highlighted in its command paper? If you got an Irish government minister after a good night in the pub, would they say, yeah, no, we can see a bit of that and we do think there's scope for some of these sort of technical tweaks as long as we can present it as within the framework of the protocol rather than a complete rewrite. Yes I think there's a lot of sympathy not least because of course the Irish are, are dealing with the consequences of Brexit in terms of their own trade with Britain. They, there would be sympathy for the difficulties in east-west trade and recognition that there certainly is a need for the joint committee to do what it's been tasked with doing and what it has the capacity to do, making the most of that. And certainly, you know, you know, the Irish government is encouraging that le- language around creativity and flexibility with respect to finding solutions for these technical matters. But as Anna's hinted at vis-a-vis the US, there is alarm when the prospect of throwing it all out on the table for renegotiation comes up. I mean, lest we forget, it was a pretty torturous 
few years in the negotiation of that protocol and various versions of it. The idea that it would be a simple solution to renegotiate it. And as I say, there is this sense in that paper that coming to terms with the realities of Brexit uh, and what it means for border management is still some way off. I mean, I think that's why the Irish government would be not wanting to see the, the broader asks of the UK considered here, although it would have sympathies with some of the technical matters that potentially could be addressed through the Joint Committee. And Alan, this is the sort of year of global Britain where sort of still president of the G7. We're hosting the COP. We're supposed to be big international players. Is this regarded as just too complicated and a small sort of local row between the UK and the EU by diplomats in the wider world? Does it have any repercussions for global Britain, do you think? I mean, potentially, given what we've been saying about the United States, if there is anything that even sniffs of attention with the United States over this, that gets in the way of that agenda. But in general, probably not. I mean, countries look after their own national interests. And when it comes to the UK's role on the global stage, other countries are going to think, how can we work with the British to our own best advantage? I mean, I don't necessarily see many countries out there, with the possible exception of the US for political reasons, taking principled stances on this. But of course, One of the big players in international relations now is the European Union. So the notion, for instance, that we can have an effective COP26 summit and as important, if not more so, go on from that summit to implement whatever it is we have agreed without full cooperation with the European Union is for the birds. So we'll need to be able to work with the EU. So simply saying, okay, we'll treat the EU with contempt, but we're global Britain so we can work with the rest of the world isn't, it seems to me, perhaps the most effective strategy. And some people have suggested that the command paper was mainly for domestic positioning and consumption rather than you know aimed at international audiences so much. Is this playing into keeping Brexit alive for as long as possible to maintain that sort of Brexit values divide? Or do you see, is this good domestic politics to keep Brexit going rather than just ticking Brexit as done and let's move on to levelling up, net zero, post-COVID recovery? I mean, it's certainly in the interest of the government to point to what it considers to be wins because of Brexit. Yeah, and I fully expect the government, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, because of its electoral coalition, to keep bringing the B word up. I'm not sure this is necessarily the most effective way domestically to do it. I'm not sure... A, that many voters really understand or care about the protocol. I'm not sure, B, where the political problem at home that they're trying to address via this is, because most of the sort of hardcore Brexiters have moved on to other issues, whether it's masks or lockdown or whatever else. So I'm not convinced that's the most compelling explanation for this, to be honest. And is there any mileage in this for the Labour Party? Keir Starmer was obviously self-isolating last week, but he's been pretty self-isolating over Brexit ever since the Prime Minister did his deal. Uh, I'm not sure there's a as much mileage as there would be, for instance, if the Labour Party could draw convincing lines from Brexit to post-pandemic economic consequences, for instance. Again, I'm just not sure with the, I mean, with the English public, certainly, that this is salient enough for them to uh, risk breaking their emerta on Brexit over. But there are other issues which might be salient enough. And Katie, to come back, what's the timetable ahead? David Frost issued this paper. We know that we don't usually expect much action from Europe during August, but he asked for a standstill to give him a sort of, you know, prolonged period in which to renegotiate. We haven't, I think, heard a response from Europe on that. They certainly haven't said yes, which I think 
he was hoping he might get. So what's the timetable we should all be watching for for this to be moved forward? Yeah, it was really unusual timing for such a big request. I, I think it would be unrealistic to think that the EU would, you know, cancel all plans for holidays and to come back to renegotiate with the UK so essentially, we do have a ticking clock for the end of September, which is when most of the grace periods, including those that were unilaterally extended by the UK in March under Lord Frost, and including the one that was um, agreed to by the EU, they are due to end at the end of September. And that is a really pressing deadline. They really would make a difference if we have those come to an end with no agreement or no extension. Uh, we really will feel a bigger impact of the protocol on the Irish Sea border then. And so that's, you know, essentially feels a very tight um, time frame. Um, I, you know, the next few weeks will go very quickly. Technical talks will continue such as they can in the coming, you know, in the, in the period of August. But yeah, no big agreement, I don't think, until early September. No big talks until then. So I'm going to wind it up there. Do read Katie Hayward's commentary on the uh, UK document. Do watch out for more material from UK and a changing Europe. And if you wondered what Article 16 is, look at our explainer by the very excellent Claire Rice on our website. So thank you very much, Anand Menon, Professor Katie Hayward, our Northern Ireland expert. Do keep listening and listen to our back catalogue over the holidays.